Well, I want to thank everyone for joining us here on this Lord's Day. And for everyone both here and online, I hope that you will find your hearts well prepared for the application of God's Word as we dive into the Scriptures this morning. So we are coming out of the Hall of Fame of Faith. I know that we are all well-equipped if we have been paying attention to understand the blessing and have a deeper understanding of the gift of faith. I hope that our time in chapter 11 has been of great encouragement to you, as it most definitely has been to me, because we have had the opportunity to look on these wonderful examples of faith. So this morning we move into chapter 12. I'd poached some of chapter 12 earlier, so we're going to be starting in verse 4. But this, this passage is a little bit more direct and a little bit more obviously challenging than the last chapter has generally been. And rather than prattling on, I think we should just read the passage and then we will understand what I'm getting at. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 4 and running through to verse 11. In Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 4 and running through to verse 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is God's word. In verses 1 to 3 that I'd poached from earlier this year, our author gave his audience a challenge, a challenge to lay aside every weight and sin which, sing, which clings so closely and to run with endurance the race that has been set before them. This is the same challenge that you and I face today. But our author was not content to just leave it at that not just to leave this charge to lay aside all these sins and to run with endurance, but he wants to bring another facet to the table, more particularly the discipline of God. But before we get there, we are indeed expected to lay aside our sin. And in verse 4, we hear the extent to which we are to go. Any one of us who has attempted to live a righteous life in this world knows that there are two battles 
at least, being fought at any given moment against sin. We have our external battle with sin, resisting temptation, repelling the attacks that come from outside. And then there's the internal battle, the dissident faction within our own hearts and our own lives that seeks to sow rebellion and lead us astray into sin. As far as the external battle goes, we know that our audience had indeed suffered some manner of persecution. Chapter 10, verses 32 and 34 say, But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. This audience of people to whom this letter was coming were people who had known suffering on behalf of the gospel. But according to our passage today, they had not yet been forced to pay with their blood for the cause of following Christ. No, for them, the greater danger he wanted to warn them against, the mortal danger he wanted to warn them against, came from within. And no amount of walls would be able to stop that, stop that danger because it came from within. I don't know about you, but I find it much easier to fight the forces of sin and evil when it comes from the outside, to repel temptations that are coming in that had not been my own. But then there are the ones that have already found some manner of foothold in my own heart and my own life. How many of us are so content to do battle against the evils of this world? Um, genocide, human trafficking, abortion, obviously deviant sexual behavior like pedophilia and the like. We're content with fighting against those things, speaking against those things. And yet our comfortable and our familiar sins we nurse behind closed doors and may even defend if we are pushed on them. These comfortable sins, whether they be gluttony, pride, gossip, greed, jealousy, anger, the list could go on. If we're not careful, they can find themselves enshrined in our lives, given more palatable names, and even sometimes treated as virtues. I know that a good chunk of us went through a Bible study on this recently that talked about um, Jay Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate. In his book there, he said of such sins, it is not enough to agree that we do tolerate at least some of these. Anyone except for the most self-righteous person will acknowledge that. After all, no one is perfect. Might be our attitude. But to honestly face those sins is another matter. For one thing, it's quite humbling. It also implies that we must do something about them. We can no longer continue to ignore them as we have in the past. The ever-present question, though, 
is how do we deal with them? Whether the big or the seemingly little sins, we all have foxes in the hen house. We all have skeletons in our closet that might have a little bit more life to them than we'd like to admit. And that leads to the main thrust of today's passage, one of the greatest tools that we have in the sanctification of the believer. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. There's a process by which God takes us from wicked sinners, desperately in need of his saving work, and turns us into righteous saints, living lives that are honoring to him. None of us live our lives perfectly. None of us do everything perfectly. But if we look back along our Christian walk, we should be able to see progress. And for some, the progress might be, I don't kill people anymore. It seems like a, a pretty obvious thing. But for the murderer in prison who sees the light and accepts Christ, that is a big step. And then for some of us, the step might be, I don't talk about people when their backs are turned anymore. I don't seek my own joy above the good of others. I don't claw after the things that this world holds dear, the, the toys and the money and the big house, but I seek after God's things first, and if he seeks to give me a big house and toys and money, well, Praise God for it. But as we are sanctified, God has deemed to use tools in doing so. And in order to encourage his readers in their sanctification, urging them and eventually us to truly lay aside their sin and to turn from all its deceitful charms, our author asks, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. The quote here comes in verses 5 and 6. And that's out of Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. It's the fourth speech from the father to his son in Proverbs. For those of you that remember, Jim did a great series on Proverbs and the speeches from the father to the son. So I'm not going to pick it apart too much because it was only in October of last year. So I'm not going to steal from Jim's thunder and just re-preach his message here. But the point in our author's message today, he says, this is the exhortation that addresses you as sons. We've had the advantage of being steeped in the book of Hebrews for the last year or more. And I love that one of the huge blessings of preaching through entire books of Scripture is that we start to see repeating themes. We start to see what God is trying to do with these individual books. 
and the idea of sonship within Hebrews should take us back to the early words of the book of Hebrews in chapter 1, verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Could also take us to chapter 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist is bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Or chapter 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Again and again and again throughout this book, we come to this idea that we, God's people, are adopted sons of the Most High God. I stick with the language of sons because that's the language our passage uses because in the culture of the day and in what our audience was hearing, to use the word sons was important because to the sons of the family was the hope and the future of that family. The sons of the family were the one that were accorded the honor and seen as the most valuable. And when God looks upon his people, he sees his son, Jesus Christ, the firstborn son, which in each family was accorded the highest honor. And then he sees the sons of equal worth and dignity and value that he has adopted, male and female. We are addressed as sons because through Christ we have become sons of God. And according to chapter 2, verse 11, Jesus is not afraid or ashamed to call us brothers. And what is this exhortation in today's passage that addresses us as sons? It's one that speaks of the discipline of the Lord. And in verse 7, in the ESV, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. That phrase, when I was reading through and reading through and reading through, kept sticking out to me. It seemed kind of an awkward phrase to me. It is for discipline that you have to endure. And if you run it through a number of translations. I know many of you here will have different translations. You'll probably notice a fairly wide variety of translations here. It's not an easy one to encompass its meaning in just a few words. In the Greek, the sentence is three words. And we've expanded it to a full sentence here. And it could easily be expanded to a paragraph. I like the way that the ESV translated it, but it still bears some expanding this morning. It is for discipline that you have to endure. It is for comes from the Greek word meaning for or into or unto or towards. Next word, discipline. That's the same word translated in 2 Timothy 3.14 as training. 
All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Same word. Or in Ephesians 4, where fathers are commanded to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Same word there. That word that we have translated discipline, it encompasses the whole training and education of a child. Mind, soul, morals, ethics. It includes the use of commands and admonitions and reproof and punishment. So, for discipline, endure. That's the third word. Wait, remain. Or to borrow from elsewhere in Hebrews, hold fast. And that hold fast there is a verb. It's something that we're supposed to do. And I think my struggle with the translation that I had in the ESV was I don't think our author is explaining something here. He's not saying it is for discipline that you have to endure. I think here it's more direct. It's more of an imperative saying for, or I also like the word unto, unto the discipline of the Lord hold fast. Now, I could be wrong here. It has been known to happen. If you ask Sherry, she will let you know. But if we change the wording, how does that change things? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Unto the discipline of the Lord hold fast. God is treating you as sons. I think the wording here, when we recognize that this is a commandment, gives some real form to our passage here. What is this asking us to do? In education circles and parenting circles and youth ministry circles, there's a lot written out there about this idea of discipline. And one of the major things I've seen time and again is the kind of three major categories that discipline falls into. You have your preventative discipline, setting clear rules and expectations, making sure that everyone understands what is expected. And then there's the supportive discipline, the warnings. See a kid headed the wrong way, you're like, you're about to hit the other side of the rules here, maybe back a little bit. It's the warnings. It's the reminders of the rules and the expectations. And then finally, you have the corrective discipline. Okay, you broke the rules. Now what? That's the measures taken to restore order. And that final category is what our author is focused on here. And there's sometimes a temptation to take what Scripture calls discipline and turn it into this limp, useless, nothing of a word because the idea of discipline, of punishment, of consequences is uncomfortable. But clearly from the rest of our passage, this discipline has to do with active corrective measures taken by God. 
Proverbs 13 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. When God treats us as sons, this is something we should earnestly desire, that God would treat us as his own children. And that will necessarily include discipline. It will include the preventative, his law, giving us his law, making sure he has given us his law in scriptural form. And also within here, you will find all manner of warnings of this is what's going to happen if you keep going the way that you're going. But then it also has the consequences for contravening his law. And this is where we sometimes lose people in a conversation about God or about the Christian life in general. People like the idea of salvation. Most people have a pretty good concept of people do bad things. And maybe there might be eternal consequences for that. So the idea of salvation, kind of, that's why reincarnation is such a great thing. It's like, well, at least I get a redo and I can try and do better next time. That's why people like this idea of an everlasting, loving, powerful God who cares for them or wants to have a relationship with them. People like that. And sometimes they're even willing to put up with the idea of God, this God or higher power or whatever they want to call it having rules. They kind of come up with this transactional mindset. All right, if I want the perks, if I want to be saved and God to take care of me, then okay, I guess he's allowed to have some expectations as well. But where they draw the line is, okay, I broke the rules. I don't think there should be consequences for that. I don't like the idea of consequences. At best, it should be I just don't get more nice things, but I shouldn't, there shouldn't be any punishment or consequence for me. I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings is that God doesn't have expectations that we must meet as his people just in order to maintain a station with him. We're not just trying to do enough that God keeps loving us or God keeps holding us amongst his saved. The consequences that God levies are not these punitive measures meant to get his employees to tow the company line. God is not some cosmic salvation broker that if we do enough right things, we can buy salvation from him. God has revealed himself to us as the Father on purpose. He is the paradigm on which all fatherhood is meant to be built, and that's why this idea of him as father fits so well within our understanding and relationship with him, because God is not this cosmic salvation broker that, okay, if they're good enough, then I will keep them in the good book, and if they're bad enough, then, but just like with my kids, I don't get to say to my kids, well, you've had a really rough day, so you're not going to be my kid until you earn a bachelor's degree. I don't have that option. And I know 
if I'm thinking about my parents, there are many days that I would have not been their kid. And I'm sure there were days where they were sitting there and be like, that's not my kid. But no matter where we're at, for me as a father, they will always be my children. I made them. They are my kids. And there is no inside, outside, inside, outside going on. The other side of the coin to our passage this morning, talking about the discipline of God, can be found throughout Scripture, but I found it particularly in Luke 11, where Jesus is talking. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Thinking of this relationship of father and son here, what would happen if I just gave my children everything they asked for without question? The answer is they would be profoundly unhealthy. Unhealthy in mind, body, and spirit. I know how to give good things to my children. I love giving good things to my children. It's exciting when I get to be the one to be the good guy, the fun one. But it's less exciting when we have to be the bad guy. When we have to be the one doling out discipline. But in order to be a loving parent, in order to be a good parent, I have to give both. I must discipline my child. There's a wide array of ways to do it, but I have to make sure that my children are disciplined and corrected. Otherwise, they become the entitled children that just feel like they can do whatever they want because the world's been handed to them and they've never had any expectations laid on them and no consequences for doing anything wrong. That type of kid who has had no consequences, no discipline, no nothing, is what our author in our passage today says, that one is basically is an illegitimate child. That's the child that okay, well, I don't really care what you do. You just go nuts. In the day of this letter, it was a rampant thing that these noblemen would have their concubines or whatever it might be, and they would have children by these slaves or their concubines or whatever. And usually, if this is a man of means, those children would be taken care of financially. They were paid for but that was as far as the responsibility went. The father was in no way involved and could not care any less about how that children's raised because he's not really my child. He's just a slave's kid. Who knows who's the parent? Because that child is on the outside. They were not members of his household. They did not reflect on him. They were other. And ultimately, the father didn't care about their behavior because they were other. 
Hebrews 3.6 says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Remember, that term of discipline encompasses the whole training and education of a child, mind, soul, morals, ethics, and it includes these admonitions, these reproofs or punishments. And God, in his righteousness and his goodness and his divine forbearance towards us, his people, has determined to use his discipline to shape us into upright, God-fearing, and holy people, fitting to be called legitimate children of the Most High God, fitting to be called a child of the King of Kings. The comparison between God and good human fathers, as we have to acknowledge that Many human fathers don't even begin to scratch the surface of doing proper fatherly duties. But this good human father, eventually it does break down because our God is so much greater. And in verse 9 in our passage, it says, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And in verse 10, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Our fathers, no matter how good, no matter how godly, disciplined us in the way that seemed best to them. As a father, I endeavor to discipline my children according to my understanding of the scriptures and the way God would want me to do it, but ultimately, that is my understanding of what God has commanded. And so I do that imperfectly, and there are times where I do not discipline my children according to scriptures. I've had moments where I've had to humble myself and come to my three-year-old, my four-year-old, and say, Daddy was wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have reacted that way. Because even the best earthly fathers are still earthly fathers. We are not perfect. But we need to be humble enough to say, I am just human, and I'm sorry. That was wrong. But God, however, has never and will never have such a moment. God's never going to have to come to you and say, I might have been a little bit harsh with that one. I'm sorry. Tucked in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew 5, our Savior says to the people, it almost comes kind of as an aside, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The impossibility of that command aside for a second, recognize the character of our God. He is perfect. And that means when he disciplines us, he does so perfectly. He is never going overboard. He is never overly harsh or overbearing. He is never misinterpreting the rules and, well, I thought you were doing this, but actually you were doing that. And he's never grasping at straws, going, how on earth am I going to get this kid to clue in? How am I going to convince this kid to see the light that I am correct and they are not? God never has those moments. God, as Heavenly Father, disciplines us perfectly. 
But returning to that commandment by Jesus, how can we be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect? The legitimate answer is, one, we can't. We are not perfect and we will never be perfect. But the answer to how we can get there is found in verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Earlier I read that definition of sanctification, being progressively conformed into the likeness of Christ, putting to death sin and becoming more and more like Jesus. In the finished work of Christ, we are declared righteousness. We are declared righteous. We are given Christ's righteousness. We are, in one respect, holy because we have the holiness of Christ, God the Son. But by God's perfect discipline, God is bringing what he has declared us to be in line with what we actually are in ourselves. As the world so desperately is seeking to conform us to its pattern and to what it wants, the discipline of God and the instruction of our Heavenly Father is what takes us a different way, that curbs us from that path. And that's what Paul's talking about in Colossians 1. He says, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. The discipline of God is bringing us in line with what we have in Jesus Christ. None of us can look at our life and think that we are perfect. And if we can, we need to look closer. And we will never be perfect. There is no perfection on this earth that we can say we've arrived. But gradually and progressively, if we persevere in the faith, if we persevere under the discipline of the Lord where he corrects us sometimes gently and sometimes harshly, but always perfectly, he will make us like Christ. I love seeing the saints that have followed Christ their whole life, 60, 70, 80, 90 years following Jesus, and you look at them and be like, how? How did you get to be such a great Christian? And nine times out of ten, 
their response will be, you clearly don't know me as well as you think you do because I still got my skeletons. But their life has been progressively conformed into the likeness of Christ. Their life has been shaped by the words found within scriptures. And it starts to just ooze from them. It's just the way they are. But none of us are that way when we are baby Christians. And none of us just start out that way. It is a life steeped in the Word, gradually and progressively being disciplined and corrected by our God, and eventually becoming much, much more like Christ than we ever were before. And I want to acknowledge as we kind of wrap up here that it is not easy, not always easy, to be on the receiving end of God's discipline. Just as a child doesn't enjoy being on the receiving end of their parents' discipline most days. Our author even acknowledges this in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Some of the trials, some of the pain, some of the suffering that we endure in this life will come down to God's discipline. Him correcting us and sanctifying us. In 1 Peter 1, Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Some of the trials we face is going to come down to the discipline of God. God pulling us into his likeness. And I make sure to say some because not everything is God's way of disciplining us. Take Job, for example. Righteous man does exactly what God wants him to do and still afflicted beyond our comprehension. So, just as an aside, don't play the is this God's judgment game. People have written whole books identifying you're suffering this affliction, this is the sin that caused that affliction. There is no book that says if you stub your toe, it's because you did this sin. Sometimes you stub your toe because you moved the chair and you didn't remember you moved the chair. But sometimes what we experience in this life, the difficult things, will be God's discipline. Maybe God allows us to reap in our own lives the consequences of our own actions, and God says, I gave you my law. I told you what to do. I gave you warnings what would happen if you didn't follow my law, and you still did it, so... Now you kind of got to pay the price. I mean, whenever we come to the Lord's table, one of the big passages, Paul's saying, he's like, if you eat the bread and drink the cup in an unworthy manner, you are eating and drinking judgment on yourself. That's why some of you are even sick. Some of you have even died because you have 
been eating and drinking God's judgment on yourself. But then he goes on to say, but God disciplines us because he loves us and because he wants to conform us to the likeness of Christ. But don't play the is this God's judgment game. It's not helpful. What is helpful is to instead do what our author said in the beginning of the chapter. Lay aside every sin and every weight which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I love watching the Olympics and some of the... I, I love watching sporting events in general. But one thing I love in race events is the racers who are dead focused on their own race, their own run, their own lap in the swimming pool, their own whatever you want to take, whatever race you want to take, those are the ones that are successful. The one that ends up turning their shoulder to see how the other person's doing, they lose so much momentum in just that turn to see who's on their shoulder. And when we, in our race, when our focus is turned to be like, is that God's judgment or how is so-and-so doing? That is where they lose so much momentum in their race of faith. When we have our eyes fixed, dead center, dead forward upon Christ, that is where our race is the most effective, the most successful. And no matter how bad our legs burn, no matter how much our lungs feel like they're about to come out of our body, no matter how badly our feet hurt, our eyes are focused on one thing and one thing only. The finish line of that race and the prize that comes after it. And don't get distracted looking around at other things. And don't be surprised when sometimes it hurts getting to the end of our race. If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, then the trials and the sufferings that we face in this world, even such as Christ faced on the cross, will pale in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ and the reward that awaits. That doesn't mean we won't feel it. We will absolutely feel the discipline of the Lord. That's the whole point of discipline. But we can't even allow that to let us take our eyes off of Christ. Take the discipline. Take our lumps of, okay, learn that lesson, not going to do that again and keep our eyes fixed on the finish line. And take comfort that your God is perfect, that his discipline is designed for the good of those who believe, and that he is using it to conform you into the likeness of his son and to allow you to finish the race. I ask that the worship team would 
come to lead us in our closing song. And then we'll pray. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your discipline. We thank you that your discipline proves to us that we are your children, legitimate children, beloved children of your household. God, we thank you that the severity of your discipline fell upon your son, Jesus Christ. That he took in himself the punishment that we each deserve. And even taking that punishment on the cross, his eyes were fixed on you. So may our eyes be fixed on him. No matter what life throws our way, no matter what difficulties we face, we ask that we would have our eyes turned towards you, for it is only in keeping our eyes fixed upon you that we will not fall and fail to finish the race. We may stumble, we may fall, but we will get back up and continue pursuing your son. Give us the strength to press on. Give us the wisdom to know when you are disciplining us to learn from those lessons that we might become more like Christ, that we might be sanctified in our hearts and our lives. And may we be the kind of people who at the end of our lives people look at and go, how did they become so Christ-like in their actions and in their behavior? May we be steeped in your word and in your truth. So much so that it just pours out from us at every opportunity. God, give us endurance that we may run the race. We may run it well. And that our eyes would continue to be fixed upon Jesus. And Lord, we do pray that for those who are undergoing your discipline, for whom that discipline is painful, that you would comfort them Ease the sting of those wounds and give them the strength to push on and carry on and to learn. God, we thank you for your word, for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that you call us sons, rightful members of your household. Lord, for those who have not yet known you as Father, for those who are on the outside of your household. May they come to know you as Father. May they know your Son, Jesus Christ. May they place their faith in him and begin that process of sanctification. Whether it's from the most simple of things, God, may they know you. And may we as your people share that hope with all that we meet. These things in Jesus' name.
Amen.